what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. Paul tells us in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who am living, but Christ is living in me. And the life I now am living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, as we just sang. The Apostle Paul challenges the Philippians after telling them of Christ's work, of his kenosis, of his self-emptying. The Apostle Paul says, Now, my beloved, in my absence, not as only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is the one working in you both to will and to want, to, to want and to do, I should say, of his pleasure, which we turn to tonight because we have it as our ambition, whether in the body or out of the body, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. We've assembled for fellowship with God and his word and his timing for his purposes. And that means that we are um, graced out to the maximum, that we have been given the wisdom to be here together tonight, to avail ourselves of God's word taught from its original language so that we'll know God in an intimate way that he has desired to reveal himself. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and commemorate this wonderful gift with gratitude to him. Let's pray. Our Father, it's so easy for us to lose sight of the things we just sang about. When we don't have our word, your word is our focus. We're not thinking of him. Father, you have called us to a challenge in this phase of history, which the Apostle Peter described. Peter, who had been with Jesus every day of, of his earthly ministry after meeting him, would say that we no longer know him after the flesh, but we walk by faith and not by sight. Father, the challenge of this time, the challenge that's a constant challenge to our faith, is so wonderfully equipped as we look to your word with the eyes of faith. And I pray that you'd strengthen us tonight, make us more like you, more like your son, from the time we spend availing ourselves of the riches of your grace and your precious word. Father, there's a challenge of concentration and focus in looking at 3,000-year-old Hebrew, well, 2,700-year-old Hebrew poetry But, Father, your spirit is greater than any challenge. We know that it is your glory to conceal a matter, and our glory is future rulers with Christ to seek it out. So strengthen us for it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So we study Isaiah chapter 26. We're taking another swing at Isaiah 26 tonight to to advance the ball down the field. If we're taking swings, we're not advancing the ball. That's mixing my sports metaphors. But we are seeking to get through what we're calling the the little apocalypse or the Isaiah apocalypse. Um, spent a little time reading what different uh, scholars have said about even calling it that. It's, I didn't realize that's, uh, that's Bible-believing fundamentalist language to call it the little apocalypse. You're not supposed to say that now. You're supposed to say this is more like a cantata of praise psalms. Uh, that's what one scholar suggested instead of saying it's apocalyptic language. But here's the reason they want to do that, in my opinion, and this is going to be somewhat controversial. <sighs> But it's just where y'all live. It's where you probably already uh, think. But um, apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, isn't really a special subset uh, genre of literature. It isn't its own thing, so that it has special rules for interpretation. And that's what's been done, is the prophetic statements haven't been taken literally. Well, we can't believe it's seven years or something when it says seven years. Because it's apocalyptic, and we've got to see that this has some sort of, you know, symbolic meaning that's just meant to make you emote, so it doesn't really give you any information. That's what's being taught. 
uh, with apocalyptic. But we don't believe that. We think apocalyptic literature, as it's called, the book of the apocalypse, or the book of Revelation, we think this is revelation and it's prophecy. Just like Isaiah, just like Daniel, just like what Ezekiel does. And the fact that you have different content in different books shouldn't surprise us because the books are different. They're written by different authors with different subject matters and different matters that God is revealing. We shouldn't expect Matthew and Mark to read exactly the same because they're two different works <laughs> that God has inspired. And so the idea that... Um, you know, this, well, this is, you know, this is prophecy, but Daniel and, and Revelation are apocalyptic. No, it's all Bible prophecy. And I think this portion of Bible prophecy is more challenging in many ways than either Daniel or Revelation, which do have, understand, do have their challenges. But this is, this is um, tough sledding in translation. I don't say that so you feel sorry for me. Okay, I do a little bit. But, um, but it's, it's a ball. And uh, it's kind of like when, I, when I'm working through a passage to translate it, to teach it and work through it with you, I just want you to know it's kind of like ra- unwrapping a present. I really feel that way. It's like, the, you know, how did he say that? I read it in English, and I'll read it in English, and I'll read it in English, and I'll listen to it in English, and I'll listen to it in English, and then I'll work it in Hebrew. And then I'll read it in my English translation. And then I'll listen to it in English from other people, and I'll read it in English in another translation. And then I'll look at my translation again, and I'll think about it, and I'll reflect on it, and I'll pray about it. And it's a process. And you can imagine, if you want the big picture, you just have to keep kind of doing that. Otherwise, you get lost in the weeds, and I especially get lost in the weeds. That's one of my specialties. Um, but um, what I'm saying is that um, it's always a surprise to me um, how clear things become as I get to share it with you. It's always a joy. And I thought I had a good grasp of every time. In the study time, like, oh, this is going to be great. And then we get to church, it's better than I thought. And uh, so Isaiah 24 through 27, as we've, we're using Alec Motyer's it's outline, it's not maybe the, the most perfect thing out there, but it's the best one I've been able to find, to assess a very challenging thing going on in this portion of Scripture. And if he's right about the arrangement, this explains why it's so challenging. Because the connections that he's pointing out between, for example, chapter 24, verses 21 through 23, you know, D1 and D2, chapter 26, verse 7, 21, where we are tonight, if he's right about the connection, it's a really subtle connection between those two passages. And um, it's not... It's thematic in its arrangement, and so there's a subtlety. Now, Meyer will tell you, as he's uh, devoted a lot of his life to just studying Isaiah, he'll tell you that in chapters 13 through 23, we had those oracles to the nations. And there are two cycles of five oracles. They both start with Babylon, which is very interesting. Uh, 13 and 14 is Babylon, and then... What is it? I forget. The wilderness of the sea is also Babylon. And so it's two cycles of five different nations as they're being described, but there's some repetition. He'll say that this is a third round of that same piece, so that this is a poetic arranged thing that goes with kind of a capstone, but it's not a cyclic look at the nations. It's a, it's a collection of poetic, um, a collection of psalms that are still dealing with the same matter, which is God's supremacy over the nations, eventual judgment of them, and upon judging them, rulership in the person of Christ over the nations in Zion from Israel. But that's the destiny of all the nations. And, um, and it's, I'm not saying it's the clearest stuff uh, to read through or you can't really uh, get everything we get from the New Testament out of Isaiah, but there's a great connection to those things. And so we're in the, ch- the chunk of the little apocalypse, we call it, where we're waiting, the people of God are waiting for deliverance. And this little uh, psalm is, in verses 7 through 21, through 7 through 21, is thematically saying, basically, there are two ways. That's one of the main things that happens. Who is he, watch who he's talking to. And it reads like some of the psalms of David about the wicked and the righteous. The statements that he says about the wicked are about the earth dwellers that are about to receive the judgment of God. Chapter 24 is largely outlining how God is going to destroy the whole earth. And 
That's somewhat of the content, the path of the wicked. But when he talks about the righteous, Isaiah is including himself and the remnant of Israel. He's talking about us when he says us, and he means the believing minority of people in Israel. An Israel that is bringing the wrath of God upon themselves. And Isaiah's generation um, forestalled with the Sennacherib invasion when Hezekiah led a national repentance, but then completed by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, a generation later. And so there is the near fulfillment of God's wrath and the far fulfillment of God's wrath, and that's part of the trouble, part of the hardship. The reason we say, though, that this is largely eschatological or prophecy about the distant future from Isaiah's day is because he says big statements about worldwide destruction. This is end-of-the-world material through here. But in this, I want you to also hear one of the most important verses in the Old Testament on resurrection occurs. Verse 19 of chapter 26 is in this psalm. And uh, God will do justice to his word even if we fail uh, to to approach uh, the presentation of of the the beauty of what Isaiah says. So let's get cracking on uh, review in verse 7. The way of the righteous is straight, smooth is the path of the righteous, which you make level. Notice we're talking to God now in this, that there's a proverb statement, and then there's a you and me statement. And that's together because there's a truth, and it's true because of who God is. So we, we pulled this together and said, you know, there's a really tight connection. There's a really tight connection between what he says in the first line and the second line thematically. And the focus is the benefit of God's provision of a smooth and straight path. God makes it level. It's him, God, who's doing it. In verse 18, after going from a proverbial statement of this is how it goes, hey, fools, this is how it is, and this is how it is for eternity. There's God's way and the other way, and there's no other way besides those two. But I've got another way. You're in the other way. You're in that second choice that's the lake of fire. And you don't want that path. And it's not going to go well for you in time or for eternity. And so there's always a wisdom warning in these Psalms of wisdom. Indeed, in the way of your judgments, Yahweh, we have waited in you. So in the way, I can't get away from it. He says in the Orach, in the way of your judgments, your mishpatim, your judgments, your your statutes, your word that you've said is your instruction, we have waited in you. And we challenged ourselves last time, is that true? For your name and for your memory are the longing of our souls. And there's a real tight parallel he does here. Our hope, the desire of our souls is compared with each other and the way of God's judgments and the personal connection to the person of God. Now, have you ever, you know that psalm, I forget where it says, someone might remember where, where uh, he says, I've, you've magnified your name, your word above your name is one translation, and I think the Hebrew uh, um, prepositional phrase structure is such that it's easily translated. You've magnified your word according to your name. I don't think there's anything above God's name. I don't think we have to have a contradiction in God where his word is more important than his person because the one produces the other. And that, Come on, um, let's don't get fancy here, um, especially if we're going to argue about um, prepositional phrases, for goodness sake. Uh, prepositional phrases are flexible and the weakest of all possible grammatical arguments for theological conclusions. But (laughs) um, here he says, in the way of your judgments, and that's compared to your name and your memory. These are the rhyme things. A, A, B, B. We've hoped, the desire of our soul. Hopefully you see our hope or confidence in him and the desire of our souls, that these are the things being compared. So when you, when you make that assessment, then you, gotta, you have to say the way of God's judgments is compared with his name and his memory. And the word of God is compared with the person of God and your knowledge of him, your thinking of him, his memory, what's going on in your heart. And that's a very tight uh, connection. Think of the person that spends his life studying God's word but doesn't have a relationship with God. You could be like, well, who would do, who in the world? Every institution of higher learning that has any kind of antiquities, biblical, theological studies department has plenty of people. And and most of them 
most of them in our culture are full of people who don't have a relationship with the subject matter that they've devoted their lives to studying. Bart Ehrman, for example, is one uh, luminary in the August hall, Halls, uh, sacred uh, ivory halls of Academ, who doesn't have a relationship with the God he's constantly studying. Most of your scholarship, if you're going to get into Hebrew studies, is by people that have no relationship to the God they're talking about. How is that possible? Well, it's just a strange thing that's happened in the world, and the only explanation I have for it is that the Word of God says that Satan has deceived the nations, and there's a veil on the hearts of the people that uh, is a supernatural darkness that um, when the light showed up, the, the world hated the light and loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. I could just say that depravity is worse than we think, and our salvation is more of a miracle than we probably thought of today, and we should thank God <laughs> every time that occurs to us. But you can't separate in your personal relationship with God that person of God from his word. They're compared, they're, they're co-located. That's God's protocol way. You don't know him if you don't know him through his word. It's very popular uh, uh, to be lazy spiritually, to be lazy cognitively and say, my spiritual encounters with God are in nature. I do it when I go fishing. That's when I worship. I worship when I'm up on the mountain, when I'm hiking. And I think of God then, and that's enough for me. My church is the mountainside or something. I've heard lots of outdoors kind of people. I like outdoors. I like outdoorsy people. They'll say things like that. But what they're actually saying is, I have opted not to know the creator. I just like to play in his playground. I like to say, somebody did this, and I really appreciate it. But he's spoken. And they're, because he's spoken, that very fact means that their rejection of what he said in his word is a child holding his hands on his ears, doing his best not to hear what dad has to say. And it's horrible. It's horrific. Satan has played this game with the human race in the last several centuries in several different ways where there are many different opinions about what God's word means, lots of different takes on it. And that's the nature of the complexity of the world God has given us. The way he's worked it is that there's the word, and then we have to deal with what it said, and we have to rise to that occasion, and it's hard work. One of the answers that was proposed is that a, a man in America in the woods said, I want to know what the real church is because the Baptists say it's them, and the Methodists say it's them, and the Roman Catholics say it's them, and the Quakers and the Friends and, and the Shakers and everybody, and I want to know what the real church is. And he discovered it when an angel, he says, appeared to him and showed him the secret tablets, and he looked in a hat and got the rest of the message by reading it out of a hat, and he can't show you the tablets, and he can't show you the message in the hat, but he could tell you what he wrote, and it's science fiction. In that science fiction story, um, one of the lost tribes of Israel made it over to the North America in boats uh, long before Leif Erikson did. And um, what they did, um, they, uh, they became what we know today as the Native Americans. And some of those rejected the gospel or Yahweh or whatever was revealed to them at that time, and they became the bad ones. And uh, there were still some good ones and uh, there was a big war, which we find no archaeological evidence of, between these warring Jewish peoples that had come over here on boats. And the evil, unbelieving, sun-worshipping, or whatever, uh, bad, bad ones, won and killed the believing ones. And when the explorers got here, that was what they found. That was the, the natives, as we call them today, uh, First Nation or whatever. It was, it was Jews that had come over in boats. I'm telling you, this is science fiction. And then we did the genetics, and we said, you know, there is no connection, genetically speaking, between Jewish people and Native Americans. There is a tight connection between, as we call Native Americans, and, uh, and the, the peoples of Asia. Real tight connection, because that's where they came from, chasing the, chasing the, the herds. Um, and so, what, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the claim of revelation, and we're off to the races, and millions of people have been bought, have bought into this. There is so much money in this now, and it's all mysticism. And it's all based on one man, one charismatic personality, shyster man's, very beautiful, attractive man's way of 
of taking people in, and I doubt not that he had supernatural power. Another did it a few centuries before, six centuries into the church age, six centuries, more than 500 years since we'd received the message of Christ. We had already for two and a half centuries had our arguments about the nature of the Trinity, which is required by what the New Testament teaches. And the churches had accepted the Trinitarian nature of the Creator uh, for two and a half centuries when a man in, um, in the Middle East said that Jibril appeared to him and gave him the new thing. And these other people are wrong and we're right. I doubt not there's supernatural assistance with this supposed revelation. And I doubt not that there's a revelation, but it isn't from God. Because it denies centrally, focuses on the denial of your Savior, that God took on flesh to die for your sins. And so Satan has played this game with us that, well, we really can't know how to read it, so we need a special revelation to tell us how to read it. And there have been those who've done this too. Every generation, some man or men or women stand up and say, I know how to read it, and it's different from anything else anyone's ever done. Ellen G. White does this. She's got the right read on prophecy, and she's dead wrong. But she made up plenty of things, and people said, well, she's got an inspiration from God. I know of a cult here in town where people gave lots of money, uh, would, would sell things based on a revelation from a supposed prophetess because she said she had special congress with God. You know about this, this cult too, don't you? You talk to the Christians in town uh, enough, you, you're going you're to stumble across it here in Norwich. And it's always this claim to special revelation. But here's the thing. Take up and read. God has spoken to us through his word, and it's challenging. And I'm, I'm proving tonight there's, this passage is super challenging. I'm suggesting that Motyer is right when I put this thing up on the screen, that this is what Isaiah did. It's hard. But what do we do with it? I have one uh, beloved brother who will say, if it's got to be this way where you have to really study it and it's original, if it has to be this way where you have to apply hermeneutical principles and reason it through and you can't just go with the consensus of what everyone else thinks, then that's too hard and that can't be how God wants us to do it. That's where I invented the phrase, this is work Americans just aren't willing to do, uh, you know, sound hermeneutics, actual exegesis of the text. We want to skip to theology and we don't want to do, do the work. But I think we're right for saying God has spoken. He's given us the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek New Testament, and He wants us to know Him, and so we have to do the work. And all the conclusions haven't been settled by a King James Translation Committee of Anglican priests and scholars a, few, uh, a couple decades into the Reformation. That everything wasn't settled by a translation committee. It's not true with the Lockman Foundation or any other translation committee. We'll never stop going back to the well of the original language and saying, how did you say it? And we'll never stop reading our English Bibles either. And so here we are. Pastor Dave, would you get on with the message? Let's get into Isaiah chapter 26 and, and read through. After we've got the proverb in verses, verse 7, and we have the nature of uh, the connection between God's person and his word in verse 8, as we said, we get to verse 9, and I'm calling it the essence of real relationship. My soul longs for you in the night. Try that on tonight, on your way to, to dreamland, or if you struggle with going to sleep, even better. Try this one. Grab uh, Isaiah 26.9 and just say it. My soul longs for you in the night. Notice I've capitalized you because he's talking to God. Indeed, my spirit in my inner person seeks you diligently. Now, maybe you can say, we can all say at times, I don't really feel a great longing for God. I might long for sleep, might long for a conversation with a friend that I'd like to talk to, or I might long for a lot of things, but I don't really long for God necessarily. Notice the second part of what he says. He says, my spirit and my inner person seeks you diligently. What if what you really, really want, deep, deep down, you feel a longing, you feel this in dissatisfaction, this incompleteness, everyone does. What if the thing you and I are feeling that we attribute to something else, 
is really a longing for God. The, the old you know, saw about the God-shaped hole. What if you are longing for God and you don't even know it? What if you don't have that sense that that's the missing thing? What if you're looking and searching and frantically digging for something that'll, that'll scratch the itch, that'll meet the need, that'll do the thing? And it's really this, that you need a relationship with God and, you, and therefore you need to feed it. Maybe that's just the thing in verse 9. And that's why I say the, the verses of Scripture will bring conviction. I don't feel like wanting to have communion with God. I don't want to know. I don't, I don't want to think about that right now. You know, because that walk by faith thing, if you just come and talk to me, it's coming. You will be absent from the body and present with the Lord soon enough. Too soon for any of us because we love you. We love to be with you. And when you go, we'll be happy for you and sad for us and you know the deal. But until then, the challenge is he's spoken and he's talking to you and what he said. And Isaiah says, my soul longs for you in the night. Indeed, my spirit in the inner person seeks you diligently. Why? For when your judgments fall upon the earth, they learn righteousness who the world's inhabitants. The people that think they know don't. If they don't know from what God has said, they don't know. They think they know. And we're filled to the brim with appeals to authority. Ever think about that? The appeal to authority. Why do you believe the things you believe about the things you, you, that you believe? Them? Why? Why? Well, generally, it's because somebody said, and they seem to know. How do we know they know? Well, everybody's listening to them. They have degrees. They've written papers. Have you read their papers? No, but they have been peer-reviewed because it says the articles are peer-reviewed. And so we know things that someone tells us based on testimony, and the testimony is only as good as the person giving the testimony, so that's why we've got to get sure, make sure that they have their degrees, they have their paperwork, right? And so we have these appeals to authority. But what if God is the really only authority? All authority comes from God. What if he's the one that's omniscient and knows actually everything? See what I mean? So it behooves us to get into the Word, and here's what happens. When God tells the world how it is, the world finally gets to learn something. And, and then they know because they're told. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's where it's going. When God's judgments fall upon the earth, the earth dwellers learn righteousness. My soul longs, my spirit, my inner person seeks. Do you see how those are obviously connected parallel thoughts? Isn't that cool? My soul is parallel to my spirit. Does it mean that the word nephesh means the same thing as pneuma, or in this case, sorry, ruach, spirit in Hebrew, but it is the inner person that we're talking about. While we're longing for God in the night, and we're honest with ourselves and saying, that's who I should be, that's who I want to be, that's not as often as I like to be who I am, I need, to, I need God to do something about this for me. I would remind you, there is an avenue in life to become the person who longs for God in the night, who is seeking after him diligently. Do you know how to do that? Peter gives us a hint when he tells us in 1 Peter, not as a suggestion, not as a description here, he's just indicatively describing himself, but as an imperative, you know, as an imperative, he says, long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby. Long for the pure milk of the Lord. You can look it up. I forget exactly where. I think it's 121 or so, but I'm not sure. But he says it as an imperative, as a command. Long for the pure milk of the word. He doesn't say you might want to. He doesn't say, after all, we are all true believers so we all do long for the pure milk of the word. He commands it. And that means that you now have a responsibility. You're not just along for the ride with your feelings to feel whatever you feel like. The hat knows what the hat wants or whatever, right? You're along for a responsibility that God has laid on you from the Apostle Peter. You're supposed to choose to take the attitude that a newborn baby has about nursing, but your objective is God's word. Newborn babies only want one thing. They want to put it in and evacuate, repeat. That's all they care about. And Peter has really summarized things very nicely. What did Peter do when they had the problem with the Hellenistic widows, the Jewish widows that weren't being cared for? 
Peter got down in the middle of it and said, okay, I got this. He's patent directing traffic for the tanks, right? He gets down in the middle of it and says, here's what we're going to do. This is the right thing. No, he doesn't do that at all. He says it's not fitting that we should neglect the word and prayer to do this arrangement. Let's get spirit-filled men that can do this. And they set up, and the church agrees, and they set up these deacons, these servants. The deacon, it begins there in Acts chapter 6. And because of the issue that the apostles, Peter himself, they need to be focused on the word, that's the Old Testament scriptures in their day, and prayer. They're studying the scriptures and praying. It's their focus. Not to say that the, the deacons aren't, but these men that are going to lead, this is where the font of wisdom exists. This is where we're going to get the information. This is how we're going to lead. And so we can't spare the time, energy, intellectual commitment to make this authoritative arrangement. People say deacons don't have authority because they want to provide authority to the elders and the deacons are just the little functionaries. You can't do that in Acts 6. And that's why they don't like Acts 6 as a deacon pastor. It's where the deacons come from. They're very uh, powerful expositors of God's word and um, diligent workers in God's uh, flock. But my soul longs for you in the night. My spirit in the inner person seeks you diligently. This is needs to be more and more a mirror for you. And maybe this will be a goal that you'll ask God to help you with. God, I want to be like this. I want this to become autobiographical. And I think the difference between uh, you experiencing this and not is choosing it. I really do. I think it's a volitional move that you and I need to make. I choose to be the kind of person that wants God's word. I'm the, I choose to be the kind of person that wants a relationship with him. And God promises that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. For when your judgments fall upon the earth, they learn righteousness, the world's inhabitants. And then if you put all this together, it's really cool. Judgments opens verse 8 and it closes verse 9. Mishpatim. Judgments and judgments. The explanation of in the way of your judgments, we, we've hoped in you. The explanation is that we love you. Your name and your memory are the desire of our souls and this is the, the, the autobiography of me. I want a relationship with you, and I want to feed that. I long for you. And the reason that is is because everything else is going to be addressed by the, the falling of your judgments on the earth. They will earn righteousness, the unrighteous, wicked world. You have our desire in verse 8, mankind's instruction the insiders and the outsiders, the remnant get God, is, is God's desire, or our desire in verse 8. The, the, the wide world in basic rejection of God is, the, is receiving uh, righteous instruction by God's judgments in verse 9. And in the middle, oh, the middle we've been harping on is that beautiful picture of what you want. I want God. I want Him. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Promise. John 15, 7, our family's memorizing that one. We're working through the navigator's little memory challenge checklist. John 15, 7. If, I, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Ask, ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. What does that mean? It means if you study the word today, and you trust in the Lord, then if you ask him for a remote control car, no, it doesn't mean that. The issue of what you desire is directly a consequence of abiding in him and his word abiding in you. Put me in coach is what that prayer is. Let me be part of your work. Let me do the things that you want me to do. Let me grow into the character you want me to have. You'll get the things that God wants you to have if you come to want those things because of your relationship with him. Oh, I knew it was going to be some spiritual thing. <laughs> it really is. And it's eternal life. And you have eternal life and you should live it. So I've spent a lot of time talking about the righteous this is the only answer for righteousness. That neutral space that we believe, we pretend can exist, where I don't really desire God, but I'm not really opposed to Him, it doesn't exist. Because what we're being, when we say, I don't really want Him, but I'm not really opposed to Him, we're being wicked in that 
We are not requiting God's overtures of love in his self-disclosure. We're saying, I don't want that revelation you have. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want the relationship that you're asking me to enjoy. It's either righteousness, I long for you, or wickedness, I don't. That really is uh, the personal way this is being broken to us. And now let's go down the path of folly, or at least watch what the Word of God says about it in verse 10. Though he receives grace, and I have to say grace because the word yuchan, passive, uh, uh, for grace, he is graced. Chana, grace. Chen, grace. You could translate it mercy, I guess, but we almost always use grace for this word. Though he receives grace, who? The rasha, the wicked, he will not lamad sedek, he will not learn righteousness. No, he receives grace. Everybody does. The fact that we're drawing breath, the fact that we have life, the greatest gift that you can't really touch, but everybody enjoys. The fact that you have a body in whatever condition it's in is better than the alternative of not having one. And this is all God's grace. And we theologians tend to, have tended to call it common grace. All the good things that we have because God is a good, good and loving creator of those who bear his image. Though he receives grace, who, the wicked, he will not learn righteousness. Notice that the connection is learning. If you won't learn, it's because you have a wicked, arrogant, unteachable spirit. And if you have an unteachable, wicked, arrogant spirit, the wickedness is just going to increase because the learning is supposed to forestall that. It's supposed to correct that deficiency. In the land of the upright, he deals unjustly. In the land of the upright, he deals unjustly. He does not see the majesty of Yahweh. He doesn't see the majesty of the Lord. Boy, I don't want that to be me. Though he receives grace, the wicked receives grace. He will not learn righteousness. And the upright is compared to Righteousness, tzedek. The wicked compared to his action of dealing unjustly. What is wrong with this person? What is his problem? It's arrogance. It's a failure to be able to be taught. I have a dear friend that asked me, if, and we're looking at the list of elder qualifications in uh, Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. One of the things that's consistent about elders and not stated for deacons is that they have to be apt to teach. But if you look at it, the theory was that uh, it seems to say teachable because the way the other words are translated. And my answer was, well, you can't do that English grammatical idiom with Greek words. It actually does mean he's capable of teaching, not capable of being taught. But I would say if you are not able to be taught then you have absolutely no right ever to teach. (laughs) The the wicked will not learn righteousness even though he has received God's grace. And and where the context should be dealing in righteousness because it's the land of the upright, he deals unjustly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. Notice that I think this is really tight. Receiving grace and seeing the majesty of the Lord are parallel thoughts in the, in the verse. Now, let, let me just show you what we're doing here in verse 10. In the New American Standard, which is attempting to be almost an interlinear translation, though the wicked has shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He'll, he deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. What happens when you read it there is it's in good English, but they've put the order into English syntax so that you can't necessarily see where things line up the way Isaiah said them. And I can't do this slide. I can't show you this arrangement of thematic connections with my English Bible because they've changed the order for English syntax. But the English translation is correct. It just doesn't show you how Isaiah thematically lined things up. What is wrong with this wicked person who deals unjustly and can't see the majesty of God? He can't be taught. 
even in the right context where there should be nothing but teaching. What is the nature of the land of the upright in the book of Isaiah? Well, all the nations are going to stream forth to Zion to receive instruction from Yahweh, from the Lord. The nature of the coming kingdom is instruction given and instruction received with joy. You know, one of the reasons we sing when we study God's word together is we're proclaiming the joy that God is giving us another opportunity to know him through what he said. That's what the singing is. It's an amelioration of our coming to know him through his word. Now, I know many people will say, no, 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 the singing is its own special separate thing of worship to God, and they won't connect it to the word of God that we're even singing (laughs) because they're therapeutic. They've absorbed their culture. They've been taught to do that. I pray that you are being taught not to. But in absorbing the culture, they think singing is about them. They think it is for their therapeutic event to have their experience. And uh, that explains, I think, a lot in American Christendom. And it won't be surprising if you're, if you're following my life. I'm reading David Wells a lot these last couple of weeks. So I, I'm saying a lot of things that he says in his book, No Place for Truth and God in the Wasteland. <laughs> so there's a lot of worldview that I have on my mind. But the wicked here is the contrast to the righteous that is longing for God in the night. In verse 11, Lord, your hand is raised up, yet they do not see it. I don't know if you noticed the, the, the neat thing that's going on here. Let them see and be ashamed at your zeal for your people. May fiery wrath reserved for your enemy consume them. Or it could be that, that the fiery wrath that is reserved for your enemy consume them. It may be Joseph or his request, or it may be, uh, there may be a modal sense, or it may be um, just that it's going to happen, because both are true. But watch what happens in verse 11. Lord, your hand is raised up, but they don't see it. Let them see and be ashamed at your zeal for your people. And then the hand of God is issuing forth in his wrath that is described as fire. And I believe the fiery wrath here is descriptive of the end state for mankind. The eternal separation from God is described as a lake burning with sulfur. It is an unthinkable, eternal, conscious torment. The Bible doesn't actually talk about it very much. You might think it did if you listen to preaching in the colonial period among the Puritans. If you listen to Jonathan Edwards and his, his compadres, you might think that the, the lake of fire was the main topic in the Bible, except for perhaps Jesus. But it's not. It's not really brought up that much in the Scriptures, but it is brought up here. And every time you see fire in the Bible, it isn't, it isn't hell. But here I think it is. This is the consequence for those opposed to God. And there is fiery wrath reserved for his enemies. This is the judgment that comes on the wicked, inevitably, in the, in the end state. But you see a unit of ignorance in verses 10 and 11 when you look at it, when you zoom out, which I often have to do. If you look in my office, which has locked both doors, so good luck ever looking at my office. Um, but if you look in my office, you might see this printed out and taped together on three sheets of paper taped to the wall where I have stared at it <laughs> quite a bit. But in verses 10 and 11, there is, an inclusive, there is a, a connection. Notice that the middle structure in verse 10 is he won't learn in the land of the upright. He won't learn righteousness. Where there is righteousness to be learned, he won't. He's just going to not get it. There's never been greater access, by the way, by application to the word of God. There's never been greater access than you have right now. Prove it, okay? Pull out your phone, and I will show you how you can get a Bible app, a a Bible translation on your phone for free right now. I don't have a phone, okay? I will take you to the nearest Dollar Tree, which is now a dollar and a quarter tree, and we will buy an English Bible that is a translation of God's word, word for word, called the King James Bible, for one dollar and a quarter plus tax. You catch the tax, I'll get the Bible. Everywhere we are, and we're saturated, but we're not looking at that. In the land of the upright, he will not, he will, he will not learn righteousness. All right, that's the middle of verse uh, 10. What's the middle of verse 11? They don't see it. Let them see and be ashamed at your zeal for your people. This is obviously the center of verse 11. And what's the issue? They don't learn 
And so they can't see. The combination is ignorance. It's the theme that is the damning criticism of the wicked. Well, I didn't know. Nobody told me. One of the first things I learned in the army was you're not allowed to say nobody told me. If you did the wrong thing, just own it. You did the wrong thing. You can't say you didn't know. Well, I didn't know. Well, we gave you the regulations book, but that wasn't the regs. We gave you a briefing. Well, I missed the briefing. We don't care. You can't say it's ignorance when, it's, when you're saturated with the information. And this is what happens with mankind separate from God's word. I'm convinced this is the deal. We are wicked, wicked people, and we think we're good. We are sinful. Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight, even the righteous things we do. And this is the, the horror of human depravity. I don't look around to my left and right very much. I don't see what other people are saying or doing. So when I find out something someone puts in front of me, I'm kind of like, oh, that's crazy. So in in my studies, I've had to hear about this guy that recently passed away in the Crystal Cathedral, Pastor Schuler. If y'all spend a lot of time studying up Robert Schuler, I mean, I don't read Christianity today. I don't really know what's out there. So so you got to be careful because you you find a quote from somebody like, that sounds pretty good, and you got to watch out what you're saying. I will never favorably quote Robert Schuler. And I don't know whether he was a believer or not, but I do know that he didn't preach sin. He preached that our problem is a lack of self-esteem. Google up, YouTube up his last sermon, Robert Schuler, final sermon. It's about how Jesus Christ is the ultimate self-esteem booster. He said that. In the name of Christ. And how do, how do we conclude? No, the problem is that without God's revelation, we are, as, we are hopeless. And I'm not saying you're as bad as you might be. You're not the worst person in town. Heard horrible things from what people have done in the news, horrible crimes and murders. And th- I haven't done all that. Right. But Jesus said, the righteousness of God is such that if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder in your heart. I never touched anybody. If you think of it uh, sexually and it's illicit, think of adultery or fornication, it's the, it's the mental attitude sin is just as sinful as the physical sin. It's that God's righteousness isn't like us. We are depraved and hopeless. And the miracle is that we get access to God's word so that we can be righteous. And the first step in righteousness is God's justification upon receiving the word of God and the gospel and trusting in him and Christ as our savior. This is the beginning of life and it is the declaration of righteousness of God to your account or justification and walking according to that word is righteousness in your experience. Righteousness is a wonderful thing. And blessed are those, Jesus said, happy is is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness for he'll be filled. But the ignorance factor is the cause for wickedness. My people perish for lack of knowledge. For lack of knowledge. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, okay, so let's, let's, let's break that down for a second. There is a God. But the fool has said in his heart, which means it's his conviction, it's his belief, that there is no God. So the facts are that there is a creator and that the fool says that there is not a creator. Now, why do you suppose he says that? Because he's ignorant. (laughs) Because he knows something that isn't true and he doesn't know the thing that is true. And I don't know why I know. I don't know. I blame it on God. I don't know why I have a perspective that that grasps these things and it's faith. It's always faith. And a lot of that is a choice. I'm choosing to trust him in what he says. Are you? O Lord, establish peace for us, for even all our works you have made for us. It's a complicated thought, he proposes. Very detailed thing, he says in verse 12. O Lord, Shaphat, and not the one we're used to seeing with a different, uh, with a tav instead of a tet, not judge, but establish peace, shalom for us. Why? For even all ma'asenu, all the works that are ours, asa to do, ma'asa, our handiwork, our works, the things that we do, all of our works 
you do, or you have done, Paul, you have done for us. So I got a literal kind of interlinear translation here. For even all our works you've made for us, you've done for us. The works we do are actually your works that you've done for us. See, even Israel isn't supposed to boast in their works. Whatever was done that would be pleasing to God, Isaiah says that God had done it himself through them. Lord, our God, they ruled over us, lords other than you. What's the word for Lord here? Adonim, lords, from Adonai. Lords other than you. Yet you, only you, we will cause to remember your name. Cause to remember Hephil from Zakar, which they translate to smooth it out, to make known. That's easier. If I cause someone to remember, I'm making it known to them. But I just want you to know, it isn't just that we're saying it. It's that we're saying it in such a way that the recipient remembers his name, causing to remember. So you've got to bring out the idiom a little bit uh, in your translation. What they say in the New American Standard? Through you alone, we confess your name. See, that? whatever. <laughs> we confess your name. It literally, literally says we'll make, we'll make your name remembered. We'll make your name, make those cause to remember your name. Zakar. Where we get the name Zechariah, the base word for um, remembrance here. So we had others rule over us, but you alone receive our worship. So did I put these? To, no, I didn't put them together. In verse 14, the dead will not live. The metim, the dead, will not chayah, they will not live. The rafayim, an interesting word, uh, probably best translated shades, from a word that means weak, to be weak, and it's a noun, it's generally in the plural, and the Raphaim are not um, Nephilim, and they're not um, Anakim, the sons of Anak. They are uh, the weakly presented ones, and generally it's associated with dead people. It's meaning the spirits of the dead. So shades, spirits, shade meaning like the weak impression of someone. Spirits of dead people will not rise. This is the finality of death, short of God's action. And it is going to come back to us in verse 19 when God does bring the dead alive and the Raphaim do live. It is for this reason that you've punished, you've exterminated them, you've destroyed all memory of them. And so God has been victorious over his enemies. And this is not a statement about, um, about eternal condemnation or the resurrection to life and the resurrection to death. It's just saying that God has been victorious and, there, and death is a final uh, judgment um, as far as this life, this frame of life. And God is in charge of life and death. And in contrast, we're back to the good things. You've enlarged the nation, O Lord. You've enlarged the nation. You've honored, or you've been honored. You've been shown glorious You've removed far away every end of the land. So he's expanded the boundaries of the land. And so in direct contrast to the victory God has over his enemies in their death, you have the expansion of the land. This is, to me, an echo or a foretaste of the second advent when Jesus will come, defeat the enemies of Israel, and the great... Uh, Isaiah sees, uh, I'm sorry, John sees a two-handed sword coming out of God, out of Jesus' mouth, which is the word of God as, as he describes the conquest. And the word for that sword in Jesus' second advent is romphi. It's not Machaira. It's not the little short sword the Romans use. It's a romphi. It's a cavalryman's sword that's, that's a two-handed sword. And that is going to slay the enemies of Israel and therefore of God in this battle that Jesus comes personally to win. It's not single combat because it's Jesus against all the enemies, but he wins it. And so what's the outcome? The nation is established, and they get to live in their land, and this is the beginning of the kingdom. Oh, Lord, in dire straits, they look to you. I think this is reflective of that period right before Jesus comes to deliver Israel in the second advent at the Battle of Armageddon. In dire straits, they look to you. They poured out an urgent prayer because of you, because of your discipline for them. Like when a pregnant woman draws near to begetting or to giving birth, this word to beget, I'm trying to be consistent, yalad, 
can mean uh, what a man does when he, has a, when he receives a child. So it doesn't mean the act of birth. It means to beget a child. And that's an important uh, word for some people because they're worried about the specifics of when a baby's born versus conception and these things. And uh, this word is uh, as often described of men as of women. It does not mean the physical uh, emergence from, from the womb. It means to beget in a euphemistic sense. And in this case, it, it's being used to mean when he's born. I hope you can understand. It's not, it's not the word to give birth. Abraham did not give birth to Isaac. But he did yelad Isaac, and, and Isaac is his yelad, <laughs> his begotten one. Like when a pregnant woman draws near to, to, to giving birth, she rises in pain, she cries for help in her labor pains. Thus we were before you, O Lord. That's the picture of hopeless agony just before. When Jesus talks about birth pangs, the beginnings of birth pangs, in Matthew 24, he's describing um, Revelation 6 and following the hardships that are coming and the judgments that God brings on the earth dwellers. And this is a tight connection here, this imagery that Isaiah pre- presents. We were pregnant, we writhed in pain, it, as it seems we begot wind. And so this is agony without of birth without give, having a baby. Deliverances we could not do of the earth is not a good English, but it is a word for word what he says. And they were not born the dwellers of the world. So my theory, I believe what he's saying here is that we had a calling to be light, to be a city on a hill, to be the beacon, and we failed. We weren't able to do our job of revelation, of uh, saving the world. Well, don't worry, God is still going to use them through Jesus Christ. And he is successful. They will live, your dead ones. My corpse will rise. I know that your Bible might say their corpse will rise. But he says mine. My corpse will rise. Wake up and cry out, you who lie in the dust, for dew of the morning light will be your dew. What? Well, it's poetry. People in the dust and the the ground are dried out and dead. One of the key things about being a living person in a living body is that all that moisture and they're in, they're reinvigorated they're alive and there's a refreshing with uh, imagery with the dew the dew is something that happens in the morning in fact before the flood apparently that's how all the vegetation got its life sustaining moisture was from the dew of the morning and so there's a refreshing that's going to happen i think this points to the resurrection body not being a different body but the same body that you encounter and, and dwell now. I hope you like it. You're stuck with it. <laughs> How that for a body positive message? This body that's fearfully, wonderfully made to bear God's image is going to be made new, right? In the likeness of Christ. And those who know you now will know you in this body then. But the difference is no sin. I believe no capacity for sin. I don't know how that works. That's an interesting theological question, but that seems to be the nature of things. Not able to disobey God. Made for communion, enjoying consistent, constant communion with God. And inheriting, as Paul says, eternity. An eternal body that cannot be defiled or decay. For dew of the morning light will be your dew, and earth to the departed spirits will give birth. So we're, we're back to that birth imagery, and the departed spirits are going to the Raphaim, are going to come back alive out of the earth. I don't think this is a, a rapture passage. I think this is the just before the millennium, the resurrection of the saints of Israel. The Old Testament saints are resurrected to enter the kingdom. And uh, this is your most important, well, second most important resurrection passage in the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, 19. So the nation's in agony. They're writhing in pain. They're calling out to God and uh, a word that can mean incantations, the urgent prayers they're offering because of the discipline God has brought. See, this is the tribulation. That's why I call it the little apocalypse. And, um, but despite our inability to save the world, your dead ones are going to rise, right? Because God saves the world, because God, Yahweh, is going to do it. And so given this picture of a coming resurrection, after a writhing in pain, giving birth to wind and being incapable, yet God makes, makes the miracle happen. 
given what's coming and the hope you have of resurrection, verse 19, here's what you do now. Come, my people, go into your inner rooms. There is a horrible devastation coming on the earth dwellers. If you're in the generation that encounters it, it's going to be something to hide from. So go into your inner rooms, close the doors behind you, hide for a little while until the curse passes. And I didn't point out how all these things are lining up with things we have in the New Testament. I'm just trying to let it speak for itself. But obviously, you can see here the encouragement. You need to go and hide from this horrible thing that's going to come on the earth dwellers. See, here's here's the way I think this is going to work. There is going to be a moment where Jesus catches the church up to meet him in the clouds. And we have our first ever uh, meeting. There's never been a meeting of the body of Christ until that meeting. And the first time we meet Christ in that meeting where the whole church is assembled together, we're already in uniform. We already have our resurrection bodies, and that's the resurrection. And the resurrection of the church is this meeting described in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then we have business in our Father's house where there are many dwelling places that He's made for us. We have business with our Savior that involves the judgment seat of Christ. And while that's taking place, it seems somehow that Christ is going to begin to open the seals that he has the right to open. The first being, and the, the first few involving um, judgments on the earth, one of them being the Antichrist. And there's coming a seven year period described in Daniel and Revelation in which God is going to pour out his wrath on the earth dwellers. Part of that wrath is allowing Satan's man to do what Satan's man wants to do building a one world government. This is prophecy, this is what the, what the Bible describes. A one world government united in a commercial and religious uh, venture focused on one great savior that the world will worship. You have to get the mark, Revelation 13. You have to get the mark on your hand, on your forehead. You have to identify with this man. Daniel calls the man of sin. Paul calls him, uh, I forget how Paul describes it in 2 Thess 2 and 3. But, but this is going to happen on earth And one of the several judgments of the seals is the Antichrist. The one that comes on the white horse going forth to conquer with a a bow, not a sword. The kids are excited. I think I know which one is, is most excited. And in that period, you begin with all the Christians and the absent from the body, well, actually in their resurrection bodies with Christ, and that begins a massive world evangelism which the book of Revelation describes as all the 12 tribes of Israel. Because the seven years that remain in Daniel's calendar for Israel are these seven years of Daniel's, of Jacob's trouble. And it's back to a focus on Israel. And Israel is going to produce, out of all 12 tribes, you're going to have these 144,000 witnesses, it describes, that go through the whole earth proclaiming Christ. Jews proclaiming the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. And they're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And there's going to be a massive evangelism. And we know so because we have all the many martyrs that are beheaded for the testimony of Christ under the throne, calling out to the Lord, when are you going to avenge our blood? And the Lord says, stand by. There's going to be a lot more of you before this is over. In this time, these Jewish believers and those who are not Jewish who become believers are going to be the object of the great wrath of God's enemy and great persecution. But we read in Revelation chapter 12 that God is going to grab the remnant of Israel and hide them while Satan is trying to pour out his wrath uh, among the nations to destroy Israel. And Satan's going to fail and God's going to hide them. And I think this echoes here. Close your doors behind you and hide for a little while until the curse passes. And we don't know everything, but these are some of the details that you have to read Rev 12. What, what is he saying? The dragon sending these, the, 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 this rage of water, this flood of water out of his mouth after the, the, the woman who gave birth to the child. Obviously, it's Israel and Satan trying to destroy Israel. We know that the dragon, Rev 12, is Satan because he says so. The serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. And, and there's going to be this effort to finally exterminate Israel but it's going to fail. God's going to hide them in the cleft of the rock. And then when Jesus comes back to deliver Israel, he establishes his kingdom over Israel, over the nations. Now, I'm saying what Isaiah is talking about is clarified later in Daniel and Revelation. I believe that. 
But I think um, that's the only way to make sense of what Isaiah is saying here. Nevertheless, verse 20 is saying you need to take this information of a coming resurrection after great pain and agony, and you need to uh, go hide for now in your inner rooms. Well, we, uh, this, is, this is the end of, oh no, we got one more verse in verse 21. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the iniquity of the earth dwellers upon them. The earth will reveal its bloodshed and she will no longer cover up her murdered ones. It sounds so much like what we read in the second advent language in Revelation 19. Our Father, we thank you for the, the promise of your coming um, reckoning, your son's reckoning governmentally. The world is deceived by the counterfeits of your enemy, and there is an economic connection to the coming kingdom. There is a worshipful connection to the coming kingdom. We have a government that we will worship because it will be ruled by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, the Antichrist is a sad counterfeit of this coming one world government that Jesus alone will establish. We praise you for this destiny, for this future, for this hope we have, and for what that means about right now. We've spent a lot of time tonight talking about revelation, about your word, about what it's for. Don't let us be the wicked because we are ignorant. Don't let us waste our lives pursuing satisfaction of self in the many ways that there are to pursue that. Let us find our joy and our satisfaction in you. Let us be um, addicts to your word. Let us be hedonistic about the joy we have of our salvation. And Father, give us that perspective that like Isaiah, we can say we long for you in the night. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.